Welcome once again to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. It's been a little bit of time since we had a, a Lynx show, but they've been uh, dripping out a few interviews I have done with a few companies into the feed that I know some of you have been enjoying with uh, various uh, tech CTOs and CMOs and CFOs and COOs and COOOOOCO, um, all sort of post XCOM, post OSCON. <laughs> but we're now back. This is Chris, and over to my left is. This is Kate. Good. I won't say good morning, even though it's morning here, so I'm just going to say hello to our listeners. Exactly. And we've got quite a few things we want to talk through, a few recurring themes that keep popping up now and again. And we'll also uh, just talk about what we've been up to and et cetera, et cetera. So, Kate, maybe you want to mention the first link. Yeah, this is actually a, um, a post that was around a little while ago. I've read it a few times because I enjoyed it so much, uh, called um, On Getting Older in Tech by Don Dannencourt. And it's actually looking at, you know, the skills that older people bring to tech in a time where the average age of IT workers in places like Facebook, LinkedIn, Google is 30 and under. When you think of it in the UK, uh, sorry, the US, and you compare it to their workforce, um, the average age there is 42. So you can see there's a, a, a dissonance there. Um, and, well, basically, this is written by someone who's nearing their 60s, uh, a guy, and he's talking about, okay, so how do you stay young in tech or young-ish? Okay, let's rephrase that. Not how do you say young, but how do you say maybe um, accessible in tech? So how do you make sure as someone who's getting older that you're able to stay employable, really? Um, what are the kind of skills you need to cultivate? What kind of mindset do you cultivate? There was someone we knew in back in Australia who uh, was, I think he called himself the startup guy, but he specialised in mentoring and helping people sort of older. And actually I find this interesting because despite these average ages here, um, Facebook 28, LinkedIn 29, Google 30, um, apparently one common um, unknown fact is that when it comes to founders, they actually tend to be 40. And I, I don't know what constitutes old <laughs> but um but that's older than that average anyway so um and i think i've seen a lot of things related to this article about the experience it brings and things like that and of course we're looking at an aging workforce now um a workforce that is going to live longer is going to work for longer because there's less pensions available but at the same time, another interesting um, trend, which doesn't necessarily apply in the, uh, the the tech field, but is is applicable, is um, that a lot of younger people are struggling to get work. Um, and when companies, especially in tech, need people, well, maybe the only people available will be older people. So maybe it'll sort of be okay. But I guess it's also that kind of attitude stuff. Maybe that's something you'd like to talk about. Well, a couple of points, I mean, that he brings up, like often, um, and I know this has been a problem in Australia recently, at least it's been publicised as a problem, is that companies are wanting a certain amount of experience in years, in measurable years. So as opposed to just having skills, they're wanting experience. And he said the benefit of being older is you can go in and you can say, well, I've got seven years experience in this programming language. I've got five in this. I've got three in this. I've got 20 in this or whatever. Um, but, you know, what having those, you know, com 
comparative skills and being able to sort of, you know, uh, learn from all of them, but also to be able to be agile enough to continue learning. And I think this is something that is inherent throughout the article when he's talking particularly to older people and saying, you know, how do you stay employed? in this industry when your bosses may be younger, your colleagues are all younger. And what he really talks about is things like staying active, staying um, what he calls interesting or interested so that you're, you know, you have hobbies, you are learning because I still contend and I say this as a tech journalist as well, if you want to work in tech or any kind of tech, you have to be prepared to learn for life because you will be learning every day. You'll be reading things, you'll be going to events, listening to podcasts, whatever. But constantly your knowledge will be changing as the technology gets, you know, grows and changes. I think this is actually the interesting aspect of like there's this, there's this often this stereotype of thinking that getting old just means getting conservative, getting stale, etc. And there's plenty of young people who do nothing. And there's plenty of old people who are very uh, adaptive and always learning. And I guess it's more of, I hate this kind of phrase, but it's more of a thing about feeling young, staying young, as opposed to age young. I think it's a mindset. And one thing I would add, and I I left a few comments on the piece, which you can read in your own time, um, is that... There are things that older people bring to these roles that are really quite significant. I mean, the one I always come across as a tech journalist is people that are able... Older people tend to be better at explaining things, particularly people that aren't programmers like myself. So they're able to... Maybe they've taught something, whether it's formally or informally. Um, They've participated in hackathons or what have you. But they're able to explain things in a way that a lot of young people can't do. All right, let's... Let's move on. Talking of um, companies probably with older workforces <laughs> and older companies, this next article has been doing the rounds the, the past week or so. Um, and again, it feeds into our recurring themes of the future of work, which is kind of weird because we don't actually work in anything, any particularly crazy outlandish methods. But um, I guess we're just interested. Uh, this is originally on Ars Technica, but I think it's actually popped up in a few places. IBM telling thousands of remote employees to come back to the office or find new jobs. Um, and this isn't the first time or in recent history that companies that previously said remote work is good and now saying, no, it's not. Uh, I've also encountered it a few times myself where you're looking for remote work and for no particular reason, concrete reason that's given, that's not an option. Uh, I mean, there are lots of positives and negatives, but it's interesting to have like this whole company-wide policy of uh, saying that that's not happening anymore. Yeah, it's an interesting piece. And it's been noted that um, IBM Smarter Workforce Institute actually in the same month uh, released research saying that remote workers were highly engaged, more likely to consider their workplaces innovative, happier about their job prospects and less stressed than their more traditional office-bound colleagues. So that's kind of interesting. And, you know, I kind of wonder if the bigger issue here is that they're actually, 
using this as a, a bit of a smokescreen for layoffs in general. Yeah, it mentions that at the bottom. It's saying that Yahoo did a similar thing in 2013. They were kind of one of the famous pioneers of remote working uh, in terms of larger companies. And this, yeah, basically saying the policy move is essentially a way of laying off thousands of employees who can't afford on their current salaries to move to a major metropolitan area. It's a bit of a, a shitty kind of uh, thing to do because um, there's no real concrete reason given apart from that and that's just theory of course and and you know what i mean the bigger that in itself is the biggest issue with this i mean we have an in, we have industries now like tech where the central what are considered the central hubs like silicon valley which we'll talk about in a minute um actually are unaffordable to most people mm-hmm. most people cannot afford to live there and when i interview people in based in silicon valley it's more common for them to have maybe one one staffer there or to go there periodically for um you know, meetings with VCs and stuff like that, they'll probably have a address there, but they're not based there because it's, you know, out of the reach of anyone who's on a budget starting a new company. And then I guess let's move on to the final article in this kind of chunk. Um, and again, I have sort of spotted this popping up myself. It's related. Um, this is from the Next Web. Why some CEOs aren't buying the freelance economy hype. Now, I think there's a couple of threads here that we should unpick a bit before discussing it in that, I mean, the article is sort of written in the context of things like uh, Airbnb, Uber, uh, Upwork, Freelancer.com, that kind of thing. Um, And there's also the more traditional contractor freelancer where the person just handles themselves. And I'm not – I'm a little unclear – um, in this article about whether they're referring to both or just the, the, the newer breed of these companies. But the basic crux of the article is saying that freelancers can help business leaders cut labour costs and remain agile on certain projects, but in many instances having a full-time employee is more valuable culturally. And I, I see this point. And this is something I've kind of um, come across myself a bit um, as a, a freelancer in that you're often you're sort of often just used to fill gaps and you're never really wedded to the company fully, Um, which can be frustrating at times. It depends what you want to accomplish with your career, of course. Um, But, you know, sometimes you feel like you could contribute a lot, but because you're not a full-time employee, you're not really given the space to do so. Um, And I'm not really 100% sure if, if that's true or not. Because you could still be wedded to a company even if you're not an employee. And and the other side of that is that um, I've always thought that as a full-time employee, you often waste a lot of time. I think we discussed this in the last episode. And, okay, what, you know, 50% of the time maybe you are contributing to the company culture, but I'd also say a lot of the time you're doing nothing. Um, so I don't know. It's mixed. But what are your thoughts, Kate? Yeah, it's, it's funny that just that last point about time wasting. I know I've been in workplaces back in the day when people used to smoke <laughs> um, and it became a rule of, no, you can't go out for a cigarette. Yet people were allowed to go out and move their car once an hour to another car parking space because there wasn't you know enough parking space around near, near where, we work, where we work. Sorry. Um, so, you know, that time wasting is inherent in many roles. And I think um, a couple of things about about this article, it's talking about the benefits of 
freelancers to the actual employer, but it's not actually talking about the experience of the workers, whether they're freelance or not. And the very real reality for a lot of people, I think, is that they would be happy to work full-time, whether that's remote or otherwise, for a company because you get benefits, you get sick leave, you get holiday leave, you get public holidays, you know, um, things that you may not get as a freelancer. Um, and you know, you don't have to be your own accountant as well, which is a fairly arduous task for anyone, um, trying to do all their own bookkeeping. So I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an unfair article because, um, it just obscures the reality that we have a growing remote workforce and we have a growing freelance workforce. Or do we? As we've just sort of, I'm not sure. I think that's kind of the the whole thread of some of the the articles we've been looking at is do we? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. We'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts on this, yeah. actually. Actually, I, I sort of, um, I think there's there seems to be always a delineation here in terminology between freelancer and contractor like there doesn't necessarily seem to be a change in hiring contractors to come and help you overhaul scrum processes or whatever it happens to be but it almost seems to be treated in a different way um i don't know like but that's how business works business is about contracting to each other you know that's how business works you don't just sell to yourself uh, yeah, it's sort of interesting. I, I don't know if it's just a terminology thing. If you call yourself a contractor, are you taken more seriously? I don't know. That's kind of interesting. Anyway, we'd love to hear your thoughts. So that rounds up our first chunk of articles, kind of uh, on the reoccurring themes of the future of work. Next up, we have another two articles grouped a little bit together about kind of uh, similar themes on location independence, locations, the themes of locations. What is location? Etc. Maybe Kate. Maybe you want to kick off. Yeah, um, this is an article from 2016. It's it's kind of interesting. It came across my my desk recently, and I was really sort of I don't know. It gave me a lot to think about. It's from The Verge, and it's called "Welcome to Airspace." And the subtitle is "How Silicon Valley Helps Spread the Same Sterile Aesthetic Across the World." And it opens with a. Um, uh, a co-founder of a, a startup who's talking, or a consultant, I think he's a consultant, um, who works across the, land, across the countries, you know, across the world, whatever. Um, and it says, I'll read you a little bit. While travelling, he turns to Foursquare for recommendations about where to eat and drink. I know what I like, he says. Every time Schwarzman aligns in a foreign city, he checks the app, which lists food, nightlife and entertainment recommendations with the help of a social network augmented algorithm. Then he heads to the nearest suggested cafe. But over the past few years, something strange has happened. Every coffee place looks the same, Schwarzman says. The new cafe resembles... All the other coffee shops Foursquare suggests, whether in Odessa, Beijing, Los Angeles or Seoul. The same raw wooden tables, exposed brick and hanging Edison bulbs. It's not that the, these gener- generic cafes are part of a global chain like Starbucks or Costa Coffee with designs that spring from the same corporate cookie culture. Rather, they all have independently decided to adopt the same foul, foul, F-A-U-X, foul artisanal aesthetic. Digital foe. Sorry, <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'm going to say that. I'll say that sentence again. Rather, they have all independently decided to ad- adopt the same faux artisanal aesthetic. Digital platforms like Force. Square producing a 
Oh my gosh, harmonisation. This is a really hard. This is a really hard one to do. Um, I shouldn't have read this sentence. Maybe we'll just we'll just let, let, let's, let's cut back to the conversation, Kate. You're struggling a bit over there, aren't you? Um, actually, I find this quite interesting, um, and I would actually say that cafe is the uh, is kind of actually the very Melbourne style. I think Melbourne kickstarted this. Um, a couple of things I'd like to say there, which I, I, I think uh, sort of related to this article. One is I sort of agree. I kind of stopped using Foursquare mostly because in non-English speaking countries, my phone is set to um, to English, and when I use Foursquare, I tend to always get recommendations from tourists, of course, which is not always necessarily where I want to be going. So I ended up finding not necessarily that I was getting um, homogenized results, but that um, they weren't always the best options or the, the kind of options where you would go if you lived somewhere. Mm. That's one thing. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is I sometimes feel like Silicon Valley has this culture of the, the, the famous scene in, um, in uh, Holy Grail, Holy Grail, in Life of Brian, with um, we're all individuals and he'll shout we're all individuals. This kind of, always like the punk aesthetic, like, you know, we all want to reject the mainstream by all looking the same. Uh, and it's kind of almost the same thing with Silicon Valley. It's like we're rejecting the mainstream, man, but we all look the same. <laughs> and, and it's kind of it's, it's a certain irony there. And finally, I would even say my recent experience of Airbnbs, which sort of falls into this whole kind of model too, mm-hmm. is they all look like IKEA catalogs. Now, half the place, no, more than half the places I ever go to always have the same furniture. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think this is the problem. These are all, to be honest with you, I've mixed up a whole bunch of different kind of topics there. I guess more the conversation of this article is algorithms. And yes, algorithms will tend to surface similar things. That's the point of them. Um, you kind of, you almost want, want like a, a, a random element in it, which then seems... Yeah, it, it's actually a bit a bit um, beyond that even. it's It actually does spend quite a bit of time talking about Airbnb. Mm, mm. Um and they're not so much just algorithms, but they're actually talking about deliberate design decisions. Mm. Um, that you have, you know, the ideal Airbnb, it says the notion of the ideal Airbnb is both unfamiliar and co- completely recognisable. A sprinkling of specific cultural symptoms of symbols of a place mixed with comprehensible devices, furniture yeah. and decoration. And it talks about, you know, like this... <laughs> yeah, but this idea of decorating standardisation where, you know, a lot of it came about when Airbnb decided to actually employ photographers to take photos of people's homes. Do they? I have ever seen they do, yes. photos. You don't, you, I mean, you don't have to use them, but it's an option. Um, and what they found is that it became, started becoming a bit more generic. So it, it, it comes to this idea of copycat cafes, copycat um, homes, and it actually went to the point, this is actually a very interesting point, um, Airbnb itself allegedly copied their, the, the layout of their actual um, design, of their, their premises, because they visited, I don't know if it's how many people in the company, but they visited a particular um, property in France, in Paris, and suddenly it turned out that the place had the same decor as the office. And 
being in being France, they've got particular laws to do with copyright, and one of them is about this because the people that own the home are actually designers, like interior designers, and so they've actually got a legal case against um, <laughs> Airbnb saying you've you've stolen our our design aesthetic and into your aesthetic. office. I mean, the likelihood of this going anywhere, it's I think it's been a couple of years already, is it's questionable. But I will I'll put the link to that article as well because it's a really interesting issue. But when you pull this apart, you know, it's this homogenisation, this idea of um, the alternative normal, you know, and everyone's peddling this idea of, well, we want an authentic experience, but we don't want it to be like those people on segways and um, (laughs) Instagramming everything and, you know, using those selfie sticks or whatever. You know, there's somehow this other experience. Exactly. But is it more authentic? Yeah, everyone's always looking for the places where the locals go. Places where the locals go, but we want the beer to be cold and we want ice in our drink. The places where all the locals go as recommended by an algorithm. Yeah, so um, it's it's yeah. a really interesting issue. And I'd be really keen again because I know what they're saying with these kind of cafes. I've seen them. I've seen them in Bratislava, here in Berlin. I've seen them in Melbourne. I've seen them in um, Amsterdam, all kinds of places. There is this commonality, um, even, you know, Scandinavia. Uh, and where's that coming from? It, and it may be, like Chris alluded to, that people are buying lots of Ikea stuff. Absolutely. It may be that, that people are using secondhand merchants to buy particular items that work well in cafes. Um, but it's it's a really interesting issue. At the same time, don't you always, and I know this from having, having travelled with together, that we both generally find ourselves gravitating towards those sorts of places well because you assume certain things about the quality of the coffee and etc etc um and and also especially when you're traveling you assume a place like that will speak english whereas often if you go to some kind of dirty little place that could be awesome and authentic man you won't actually better order anything. And a salient point to that, you know what? We um, have also had the experience, and I'm sure other people have, where you're walking down the street, you're looking at cafes, and you're going, well, that one's full of men, and they're, all, they're old men, and they're all going to stare at me, and they won't, you know, I won't feel comfortable there. <laughs> it's a really common experience for women, I think. But they might have awesome food. <laughs> Absolutely. They may be the best cook on the street, but you, yeah. you know, they've got their, their 80s um, vinyl decor, and you just kind of go oh that's a bit it's fascinating i i think this is a time to uh, to maybe spruik a, a bit of a t-shirt i've been thinking of producing which is um i haven't quite nailed the the complete slogan yet but it's like about uh disrupt the algorithm or something like that or uh, yeah i haven't quite haven't quite decided on it yet but anyway let's move on it's a little bit different actually I, we group these two links together but they're not necessarily related um so I, uh, several years ago, was a big fan and wrote a fair bit about the Estonian e-residency program. Um, and I, I did it. I know I applied for it just because I was interested, really. Um, I uh, wasn't even intending really to use it. As a current European citizen, it didn't necessarily offer anything I necessarily needed um, because I had the ability to open a business in Europe if I wanted to um, and also uh, I don't really want to run a company which is one of the other advantages of setting up a business in Estonia I just want to be a freelancer but still it was a concept that I found fascinating and I wanted just to follow the process and I did and I interviewed lots of people in it and it was very interesting 
But one of the big problems I always had with the scheme was that uh, to open a business and to open a bank account, you would have to visit Estonia. Um, and Estonia is a lovely place, but it's not the easiest of places to get to, and et cetera, et cetera, and it kind of defeated the point of the program. They managed to solve the problem around um, opening a business, I think late last year or early this year, finishing that piece of the puzzle. And now, uh, just from about a week ago, uh, thanks to a partnership with a Finnish banking startup called Holvi, you can now open a bank account too. And I actually looked at the process. I was interested in looking at the process, and you can't open the bank account without having the business, so I couldn't go through the steps, but I was having a chat to the people at Holvi actually. Um, yeah, but um, so now, in theory, if you want to... Uh, open a business in Estonia and have this kind of European base completely location independent it is now possible and I love this about Estonia and a couple of other countries trying it there has been a sudden run of these location independent banks appearing actually we're both members of um, one here called number 26 which is kind of location independent it's not completely but um, they're certainly going down that path and they've opened themselves in about five or six countries here in Europe um, and there's a Dutch one, there's an English one, and now there's Finnish one too. And this, to me, is something that I this I think um, I wrote an article recently about these sorts of themes, the reality of being a digital nomad, and these kind of aspects of normal life that are still challenging. Things like insurance, banking, um, pension funds, all this kind of stuff that really. You know, you still find yourself very tied to a nation state for certain things. And it looks like banking is, I mean, if you were, if you were rich, you could always have location independent banking. There's always been offshore banking. But for the more kind of normal person, then that's not really been so easy. And now this is changing. And I would say, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, maybe those other aspects will also be replaced. And of course, you're always going to get worse deals with these sorts of accounts than if you were just sticking in one country. But that's the priorities you make in life. And that's, um, so yeah, it was a medium post actually from Casper Corgis, who I, who's the head of the residency program. And I actually interviewed him for my article a while back. Uh, he's a fairly entertaining guy. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, uh, that's basically the article. Um, interesting to, uh, to see that finally these pieces of puzzle, the puzzle have slotted into place. Um, any thoughts, Kate? Yeah. I mean, I think, it's it's reflecting uh, what people are wanting and the idea that people are becoming less wedded into to a nation state or, or you know the place they were born perhaps uh, like you, you need only ask someone these days where are you from like people ask me all the time you know because they can't quite work out my Australian accent they always say where are you from and I say Berlin <laughs> um, just to annoy people but no I try not to do that actually uh, but yeah I think that the banking is one of the most stressful things to set up when you are an expert. I'd actually disagree there. I really don't think it is, but anyway. Well, I think maybe our first experience was perhaps the most stressful because we we chose a very old Eastern um, East German bank. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think these players are great, and I think the idea of having a toe into um, – the economy of Estonia is fantastic. It's great for them as well. And yeah, yeah. comparatively, I was reading something yesterday that 
Russian people can, um, inv- if they invest $2 million in Cyprus, they get residency automatically. So there are other ways people try and kind of sneak into the EU. Yeah. Well, well okay, well, that's a different one. Yeah, it's, don't don't group Estonia into that. They make it very, very clear. No, it's not a gateway no, no. to residency. I guess I'm, I'm trying to say this is, I see this as a, as a better way. Maybe. Uh, yeah, citizenship and businesses are two different things, thankfully, and they should be. Otherwise, it would be back like how it used to be. And the you know, not that long ago, only business people could vote and things like that. It's not that long ago. Okay, let's transition straight into the next article because I think it's got a good connection from something you just said. Um, this is, I mean, this article popped up all over the place, but this one in particular that we're, that we're channeling is from the Next Web again. How Europe's biggest economy is uniting its tech hubs to dethrone Silicon Valley. This is our very own uh, Germany, where we are talking to you from. Um, and I find this uh, quite interesting because I feel like with the unfortunate changes in the US and the UK, especially for us, the, the UK, um, that um, they're becoming less less relevant. And that's a pain for, for us, actually. But anyway, sometimes you just got to acknowledge how the world changes. Um, and even uh, Angela Merkel said, I think, last week that she can't rely on the US and UK as partners anymore, which is pretty sorry state of affairs, especially when, yeah, especially when you're a citizen of one of those countries. But still, on the positive, let's stick to the positive. Um, I think... What this has meant, and it has been happening, especially with Macron and some other European leaders, in that Europe is kind of pulling its bootstraps up, as we could say, and um, doing something about it and creating itself as a viable alternative. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you think, Kate? What do you think? How do you think this could work? Will it work? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, what they what they're kind of trying to do is set up digital hubs, and they've set up five of these already, and they've announced another seven. Uh, and the idea is that the cities can apply to host digital hubs and industry special specialities in their areas. So, you know, what's this? What this is going to mean, in, and what they actually do <laughs> in terms of, you know, is it just grouping together? different verticals of tech or is it providing you know centers of excellence research institutes um, places where people internationally can come and visit and do business or start businesses in these particular areas like for example berlin is fintech and iot munich is mobility uh, frankfurt is fintech hamburg logistics cologne insurtech i think they stuck a new word made a new word there <laughs> no, I don't know. I Infotech, that, I haven't heard that I'd one. I'd call that fintech, really. But well, yeah, is. I know. But, you know, I, look, I, don't, I think it's a good idea. I think it may, it shows that Germany is kind of, has always been very, you know, heavily involved and invested in tech, particularly when you look at um, manufacturing and um, industrial areas like robotics and in factories and things like that. Yeah, it's actually the, the, the comment I've often heard is that Germany was very innovative in terms of technology in the 70s and 80s and then kind of dropped off a bit and they're still sort of leaning on a lot of the businesses from that era. And, and then you've got sort of your industry 4.0 stuff, which mm-hmm. they started, where, you know, you've got the automobile companies, you've got the all kinds of factories, they're all doing stuff. Um, what I wonder with this, is it going to create... You know, what are these going to have? Like it says that they're going to include industry specific specific research, educational institutions, a good startup community, local networks of influencers, and internationally leading businesses. So, 
it, it sounds like it's pretty comprehensive. I understand this has been done before. This was actually done in um, Singapore. Uh, they did start up genome stuff over there. Sounds kind, of, sounds kind of strange considering Singapore is a city-state anyway. And that was in the 90s they did that, so a little while ago. And conversely, I've seen other hubs that have been kind of trying to be set up. Like I know Australia is doing them, setting up hubs in, in Berlin. Um, where are the other countries? Uh, I have to look it up, but I'll put a link in. I can't quite remember. Which said, the fact that I don't know says how much promotion they've done here in Berlin about it. You know, I had I had one journalist contact me about it. Um, oh, sorry, one guy that was working on the project, but it just I wasn't clear on what they were doing and why yet to be able to write about it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of I sort of have very mixed feelings on the German startup um, scene sometimes. Oh, Europe generally, but especially kind of. Germany, Austria, um, I don't know. I sometimes find it still can feel very conservative. The funding is spectacularly conservative. You, you need only look at any comparative analysis of where the, money, where the money is, how long it takes to get money, how much you get. It's substantially lower here in Germany. Oh, I'm not sure about that. It's just... It is. There's a lot of research to demonstrate that. Yeah, okay. Anyway, let's see how this goes. We'll keep tabs on it. Maybe we'll even try to get um, someone from D-Hub. The hub <laughs> to um, to um, to on the show maybe yeah that'd be great okay before we round off with the and finally sort of fun article let's um, quickly talk about uh, what we've been up to over the past couple of weeks and what we're up to over the next couple of weeks so Kate maybe you'd like to kill off kill off kill off <laughs> yeah it's, it's a day of verbal blunders here in Berlin um, maybe I just need more coffee than ever these yeah. days well, maybe Chris needs one too um, <laughs> sorry what I'm actually trying to say is yeah that's been busy for me um I've got a lot of things coming up. This week I've got IoT um, Expo here in Berlin, an international expo of IoT, which means I'll be there tomorrow and the next day. The week after we've got Wear at Berlin, which is a wearables festival here in Berlin. Um, I've been doing some lots of writing, obviously been writing a lot about ransomware, as you could imagine. Uh, writing about robotics, because I always do like my robots, as people know, and particularly looking at the idea of robo- robots in policing. You might have seen last week in Dubai at a security expo, the government there, or sorry, the police force there has released a robot to do policing tasks. And it really is, you know, effectively a kiosk on wheels when you when you break it down. It's not like a Robocop with, you know, machine weapons and things like that. Um, and this is the interesting thing about robotics. I'll just do a quick little one sentence, two sentence thing. Um, people think, you know, Robocop for robotics and there's you know there's there's a division there's your friendly kind of helpers there's there's robots that look like um, Daleks there's robots that look like Pepper that kind of stuff and then you've got ones that are used more in your kind of um, on the ground obviously you know, originating from military operations. So, you know, they'll use a robot to throw into, and they'll throw it into a building because it's got a camera on it so they can see what's going on. I like the concept of throwing it in. Yeah, they're, they're, well, they've got wheels <laughs> and they can flip themselves upright. Um, they will use them to detonate bombs. They will use them in areas to, you know, do all kinds of stuff. And then you've got this issue of drones, which are effectively robots, let's face it. And, you know, drones with weapons. So I'd encourage you, if you like robots as much as I do, to read the article. <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a it's a good piece. I, I tried, to, tried to look at you know some of the ethics and pull it all apart. And there's plenty of pictures and some great links. 
All right, well, for me, uh, I've been pretty busy too. I've got quite a few articles scheduled to be published that haven't been published quite yet. But um, So I've got uh, waiting to be published. I have my top 10 or top, I think it ended up being about top 12 uh, podcast episodes for developers. I spent several days listening to podcasts. Uh, I also have an article on creating a podcast on a Mac and also... Oh, several other articles always to be published, but let's maybe go on to the ones that have been published. Um, I wrote something about Paddle merging with DevMate, which is kind of two macOS developer platforms. Also popped up in this feed, I had an interview with Manish Gupta from Redis Labs. Um, an article on writing your own chatbot, which was quite fun. An interview with Source Labs, which also should have popped up on this feed for you. And then reviews of Unit. Berlin Festival, which I think we talked about last time, and a write-up of my time at ITake Bucharest, um, a conference I was last at. Uh, I also got back to doing a bit of my um, fiction work, which was quite fun, which is a fictional conversation between God and Jesus, <laughs> which over a Snoopy phone, which you might quite enjoy. Likewise, this afternoon, I am off to Pioneers in Vienna, and I'll be interviewing lots of people, so expect a lot of interviews dripping through the feed over the next couple of weeks. I've got lots of interviews lined up when their matchmaking system finally actually schedules them all, apparently tonight, the day before the conference, which is tremendously helpful. But anyway, (laughs) and on the next episode, actually, we have, I'm just going to quickly pull up the name. We are going to be talking about um, how technical people learn. And we have a special guest in the form of Jessica Lovegood, who I uh, know through uh, Manning Publishers, who I'm writing a course for. And she wrote quite an interesting article about how uh, tech people learn. She did a survey and we're going to have her on the show and she's going to be talking about what she learned. So that is going to be on our next show. But for now, I have been Chris Ward or at Chris Chinch on most social networks. And over to my left. And I've been Kate Lawrence. If you want to go over to Twitter, Kate underscore Lawrence small letters K with a C Lawrence with a W um, and if you've enjoyed what you've heard then please go to garrismammal.com slash podcast to find show notes and previous episodes and if you really loved what you heard then go to various podcasting platforms upvote us and if you feel especially kind go along to garrismammal.com slash support buy some merchandise give us a donation and then we can afford to eat god damn it hello Anyway, thanks, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Take care.